Amen. Good morning, Harvest. You can go and have a seat. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins, and I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. Whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we are so thankful that you have chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. We want to make you feel welcome, and so we've got a gift for you out in the lobby. If you haven't gotten that yet, uh, we just want to get to know you, know how we can best love you and serve you and pray for you. But I don't know about you this morning, but I am absolutely fired up. We've been led in worship to the King of Kings this morning. Uh, It's my favorite season outside. It's cold outside. Uh, it's fall. I'm like 99% better from the cold I've been fighting for like the last three weeks. It's World Series time. I've been studying an awesome passage of scripture all week. Thomas isn't a fan of the World Series, apparently. Um, but I've been studying an awesome passage of, the, of uh, God's Word this week. And so let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. Uh, so if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me this morning again? in Titus chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, Titus 2, 11 through 15 this morning, continuing our Build Your Church series, uh, going verse by verse through the book of Titus. We're almost to the final chapter, and we've got some awesome things in God's Word this morning to see. So I would love it if you could follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a couple ways you could still do that. You could uh, just pull out a phone and Google Titus chapter 2 ESV, and it'll pop up for you because technology is awesome. Or if you prefer a paper Bible, uh, there's some on the, on the table in the back of the room that we would love for you to just make use of and take with you if you don't have one. We would love for that to be uh, our gift to you and, and so that you could have God's word and read it and use it and have it for yourself. So uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning. And if you're already there, I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. And now as we continue worshiping, as we come to your word, Father, I just ask you that you would be mightily working among us this morning because we need you. As we, as we talk about grace, the, the very essence of grace is that, that we need you, that we can't do this on our own. And I need you as I preach. We need you as we study God's word together. So Father, would you, would you through your spirit invade this room, invade our hearts, soften our hearts, and prepare us for what we have in your word this morning and do a mighty work in us. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, many men who have been deeply in love with a young woman have found themselves in the same position that I found myself in somewhere around 10 and a half years ago. Now, to be a little more specific about that, what I mean by finding themselves in a position is that they've, they've found themselves walking into a jewelry store, prepared to spend way more money than they thought they'd ever spend on a ring for a young woman that they loved far more than they ever thought they could love. For me, that, that whole experience of that day is really frozen in my memory. I can remember the anxiety that I felt as I, as I parked the car that afternoon and then kind of sat there like working up the courage to go inside. 
And I can remember walking through the, the, the doors of the jewelry shop and that anxiety turning into like just straight up fear as I waited for the sharks, I mean salespeople, to start <laughs> circling around me and, and go in for the kill. But what I remember most about that day was being captivated by the beauty of a diamond as a salesman laid out a black display cloth across the, uh, across the display counter so that he could display the diamond on it. I can remember listening as he described the uniqueness of the diamonds, and I can, I can remember watching him as he, as he showed the different angles and cuts and all the different things that make all the, all the different diamonds precious. And as he was doing that, I can, I can remember thinking about the joy that would happen if I were to, to purchase that ring and, and put it on Veronica's finger. I can remember the, thinking about the joy that would happen and also the change in my own life that would, that would far outweigh the change in my bank account that was also about to happen. And that brings me to the question this morning. What do you think of when you think of the word grace? Maybe for you, when you think of the word grace, you're somehow transported back to the church you grew up in with, with the, the ugly carpet and the out-of-tune singing where you, where you first heard the, the, the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or maybe when you hear the word grace, you, you think it's just a, a churchy word, another way to say just being nice, like to be gracious is to, to just be a really nice person. Well, by definition, grace is undeserved favor. It's receiving something incredible that you don't deserve at all. And what I want to show you from the passage this morning is that grace is one of the precious diamonds of theology on display in the showcase of Scripture. Like in Titus chapter 2, I think that, that Paul is playing the part of a good jewelry salesman in our passage this morning. I think he's, he, he's, he's wanting to show us the diamond of God's grace in all of its beauty. So, so even though diamonds are impressive enough in their, their own normal lighting and their own normal backgrounds, as we approach the, the, the showcase of God's word, Paul, Paul turns up those fancy overhead lights that make everything sparkle on a diamond. And he, and he lays out the, the black display cloth to put, to put the diamond on to, to make the contrast between God's grace and our sinfulness all the more noticeable. Then as we're captivated by the wow factor of of grace in contrast to our sin, Paul starts slowly turning the diamond for us to to show us all the different angles and describe the very cuts and and everything that makes grace all the more impressive. But he doesn't stop there in the passage. He he, he knows that a diamond left in a showcase, while, while still precious, is ultimately pointless unless it's actually put on and worn and applied to someone's life. And he wants us to see that, so he, so he invites us to, to lean in a little bit, and he says, listen, listen, I want you to picture for just a second the joy that would result and the, the change that would take place in your life if you would take the diamond of God's grace and, and apply it to your own life. Because the diamond of God's grace is as practical as it is precious, and that's what we see in Titus chapter 2 this morning. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our our big idea, our our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it together for us. Our our big idea this morning is this, God's grace drives the entire Christian life from beginning to end. That God's grace drives the entire Christian life from beginning to end. And we're going to see that as as Paul invites us into the jewelry store of of God's word, and he, he starts slowly turning this diamond to show us three different cuts in these five five verses to show us the angles of God's grace. So, so let's go diamond shopping this morning, okay? So here's our starting point. Here's angle number one. Paul wants to show us that God's grace has saved us from the penalty of sin. That God's grace has saved us from the penalty of sin. 
Verse 11, Paul starts showcasing the diamond of God's grace by saying this. You can look back at Titus chapter 2 with me. In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. At this point in our series going through Titus, you've probably noticed that as we've been working our way through Titus, all of our sermon titles have started with the word pursuing. We've looked at pursuing God's plan, pursuing spiritual maturity, pursuing biblical leadership, pursuing gospel purity, because as Jesus has promised to build his church, like that's our, that's our heart cry, Jesus, build your church. As we've been going through Titus, the blueprints for the church, we've been looking for what we should be pursuing to do our part as God builds his church. But the title for our sermon this morning is not pursuing grace, it's pursued by grace, and that's for a very good reason. See, we did not find saving grace. We didn't discover it. We can't chase it and catch it. And we certainly can't earn it. We didn't go to it. It came to us. And we see that right in the text. So what does Paul say in in verse 11? What does he say grace did? What verbs does he use? He says, the grace of God has appeared. Like it showed up on our doorstep. And when it showed up on our doorstep, it brought with us salvation. It came to us. Now that's good news, but it only gets better because see, here's the thing. In our context this morning, the grace of God isn't an it, it's a who. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Listen, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And it happened by God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ, because we could not go to him. See, the word appeared here is the Greek word epiphne, and if that sounds familiar to us, it's because it should. It's, it's where we get our English word epiphany. And if you're like me, when you think of the word epiphany, what probably where your mind goes is like, oh, I got a bright idea, like something clicked, and, and I understand something, like I just got this brilliant idea, I'm going to make an invention, I'm going to take it on Shark Tank now. That's what we think epiphany means. But so this week, I, I decided you know, it'd be cool if we had like an official definition of the word epiphany. So I googled it, and I was shocked by what Google defines epiphany as. You can look it up yourself, but this is literally what came up as I Googled epiphany. The the definition of Google says, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles as represented by the Magi. How awesome is that? That's what Paul's talking about here. Like this is the moment the entire world has been waiting for since Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and plunged all of us into sinfulness. Like this is the moment the entire Old Testament was pointing towards. Like, you really want to know what the Old Testament is about? Well, it's about our desperate need for our Savior. From Genesis chapter 3 onward, the Old Old Testament is just one massive black jewelry store display cloth showing our need for a Savior and the setting the stage so that when the grace of God did appear, the contrast between between the grace of God and our own sinfulness would be so obvious that we'd, we'd look at it and say, that's what I need. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been longing for because in the Old Testament, the law couldn't save us. The judges couldn't fix us. The kings couldn't lead us to perfection. And even the prophets couldn't change our own hearts. We needed a savior because our sin has separated us from God and we cannot save ourselves. We can't make our own way to God. 
This is the lesson that Martin Luther had to learn that would then push him to set the world on fire with the Protestant Reformation. And yes, I bring that up because tomorrow is Reformation Day. And while some of you guys are trick-or-treating, theology nerds like me are going to be sitting at home with a book and a cup of coffee and maybe watching some World Series baseball. But Martin Luther does teach us a very important lesson. See, Martin Luther was a monk who tried playing by all the rules to earn his own salvation. Because during the Middle Ages, the, the Roman Catholic Church taught that the way to be saved was through religious effort and spiritual discipline. In other words, if you could manage to pray enough and do enough and confess enough and, and serve enough and, and do all these things enough, then if the Catholic Church thought that you had earned it, then they could bestow grace on you, but only again if, if, if they thought you'd worked up to it. And let me just say, Martin Luther gave it his best effort. At one point, he walked away from a career as a lawyer to try to earn God's grace, but deep down inside, he knew that it was a completely useless effort, that that could never, ever happen. So later in his life, he wrote this. He, he admitted, if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more I daily found it more uncertain weaker and more troubled. But well, then one day, uh, Martin Luther was studying Romans chapter 3, which has verses in it like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the light bulb went off in his mind and God did a work in his heart and it became very clear to him and he understood that the only way to be saved is as Ephesians chapter two says, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross alone. So I wanna ask you the question this morning, do you understand your need for grace to save you from the penalty of sin? See, God is an infinitely holy and perfect God, and because he's an infinitely holy and perfect God, he rightly demands perfection from us if we are going to ever be in relationship with him. But like Martin Luther read in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all, we've all messed up. And every single sin that we've ever committed is an outright rebellion against our creator in a case of cosmic treason that is punishable by death and eternal punishment in a literal physical place called hell. And you can't work your way out of it. You can't save yourself. You can't argue, argue for a lesser sentence. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing with it salvation Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he went to the cross and he died the death that, that you and I deserved. And then he rose from the dead three days later, throwing wide open the doors of salvation so that if you would just recognize your need for grace and, 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 and repent or turn and reject your sins and then place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, you would be saved and reconciled to God the Father. And by grace, then when God looks at you, he will not see your sin. He'll see his son and you'll spend eternity with him. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would, I would plead with you this morning to make today the day of salvation. Run to Jesus and be saved. You can talk to him where you are. You can come ask questions after the service and we'd love to talk with you about what the gospel would mean in your life but don't leave here without knowing for sure where you stand with God through grace. See, Paul's not done yet, though. 
He's only getting started. And as we move on, he continues turning the precious diamond of God's grace so that we can see the second angle of it this morning. And that's that God's grace is sanctifying us from the power of sin. That God's grace is sanctifying us from the power of sin. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. He goes on and and he says again that that same grace of God that has appeared is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I know this might come as a shock to some of you, but did you know that even once you're a Christian, even once you're, you're trusting in Christ, you're still going to struggle with sin? Like, am I the only one here, or, is, or do we all, as, as Christians, do we still struggle with sin? Well, I'm glad I'm not alone. Thank you. But we're even still in good company because even the apostle Paul admits his own still struggle for sin in, in places like Romans 7 that come to mind where in a moment of frustration, I think we can all identify with Paul just like throws his hands up in frustration and, and finally says like, I don't understand my own actions. The things that I don't want to do, I can't stop doing. And the things that I, that I do want to do, I can't do. I'm just a, I'm just a wretched man. Because see, we are saved from the penalty of sin the moment that we place our faith in Jesus. But as we live in this fallen, broken world, sin will still have a a pull on our lives until the moment that we see Jesus face to face. But by God's grace, that power over us that sin has will increasingly become less and less and less as we walk with Jesus. Because the good news is that, that God doesn't just save us and leave us to figure things out on our own and clean ourselves up. No, the same grace that has saved us is, is, is empowering and sanctifying us and freeing us from the power of sin in our lives. In verse 12, Paul says it's that same grace that is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But what does it really mean to renounce something? Because you know, like some things in life are, are easier to quit than others. For instance, I can remember uh, many years ago, a documentary came out uh, that revealed and showed the world was actually in hot dogs. I can remember, uh, in a, it, like, whenever this came out, I can remember uh, this documentary showing in disgusting detail all of the, the fillers and additives and, and just extra parts and things that are thrown into hot dogs. And I can remember several people that I know watching that documentary and, and without really thinking about it at all, just exclaiming, I am never going to eat another hot dog again ever. And they haven't. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) But in a moment of of disgust, they looked at what it is and said, I'm never doing that again. They've renounced hot dogs. The thing is, that's not usually how it works when it comes to sin in our lives, right? It doesn't usually work that easy. We can't just quit it cold turkey. So how about another example? Will anyone ever try to quit a bad habit like biting your fingernails or, or grinding your teeth or something like that? Well, maybe you can quit cold turkey, but for most of us, mere mortals, uh, what we try to do is then is use little tips and tricks that'll just get in the way of, of the bad habit that we're trying to quit. When I was a kid, I used to bite my fingernails like all of the time, and apparently at the time, they were selling some like fingernail polish type thing that you could put on kids' fingernails, and then they would bite their fingernails, and it would taste disgusting. And so, so my parents threatened to get that thing, and, and before they did, I quit But the point is, when most of us try to quit bad habits, we try to use these little things that'll change our behavior. But the thing is, that change of behavior still doesn't transform our motives and desires. In other words, it stops short of fully renouncing something like we're called to do with sin. 
So what's the difference? Why is it so hard to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? It's because sin has a death grip on our hearts. It's not just skin deep. And if, even if we can manage to, to clean ourselves up for a little bit and, and, and behave ourselves in public, sin will still have a, have a white knuckle grip on our hearts, holding on and refusing to let go unless God himself, by his grace, intervenes in our lives and, and works on sanctifying us from the power of sin. Parents with young kids, you, you know this is true. Because before you go out in public, you, what do you do? You like bribe and you threaten and you give pep talks to say, you, you can behave yourself out here. I know you can do it. But even once you get them in public, in the back of your minds, there's still like a ticking time bomb over here because you know that you can't change their hearts. You know you can't change their desires. And the same is true for us as adults. So we need God's grace to be sanctifying us from the power of sin. We need it to change our hearts We need God's grace to, as verse 12 says, train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? Now. In this present age. Now. You see the change that takes place there? Like, Do you see the contrast between ungodliness and worldly passions and self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? Like that's an incredibly different picture there, but, but still it's kind of a general, those are kind of general adjectives. So, so maybe Paul can give us a little, little clearer picture of what he's talking about here. Well, he does in Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 24, where he compares the, the works of the flesh to the spirit or the fruit of the spirit. And here's what he says there. Here's how he describes this change. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see the difference there? What a change. Like that's the kind of transformed life that we're called to and being moved towards by God's grace. But the question then is how? How does this change take place? Well, the, the text tells us. Through training. That's what it says. And just like any other time in training, there's always two people, there's two parties involved in training. There's the the trainer and there's the trainee. And in this case, it is God's grace that is the trainer and it is us that are the trainees. And if we're going to experience spiritual growth, we've got to go to the spiritual gym. But here's the thing. We can't go to the spiritual gym like I used to go to Planet Fitness. See, when I used to go to the gym, first of all, I pretty much only went because my wife would drag me there. And then, and then once we would get there, I would literally walk in the door, find the, find the elliptical that had the best view of the TV, and I would just park myself there. And I also had a book with me because, listen, I really wasn't interested in making any progress whatsoever. I wasn't interested in breaking a sweat and growing. I was just there for the appearance of activity. I was just there because I thought it was what I was supposed to do. I thought it was, I, I was trying to, to do some things and make it look like I was busy and accomplishing something, but I, but I never actually was. And friends, some of you are treating your training for spiritual growth like I used to treat my time at Planet Fitness. 
You're trying to look busy so that you can say you did your duty. You're trying to to fit in, but you're not interested in being serious about growing to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You want the appearance of activity, but, but you don't want to dig in and grow. Now, if that's you this morning, let's change that. Let's, let's change that. Let's, let's get serious about spiritual training so that we can be sanctified from the power of sin. And if you're up for that, here's what you'll need. We're going to look at, at what needs to be in your spiritual gym. We got four things that need to be in your spiritual gym. If you're going to train for godliness, first, you'll need your personal trainer, the Holy Spirit. See, right after Paul compares the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.5, 5, he, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if you want to grow in godliness and be increasingly sanctified from the power of sin in your life, listen to the Holy Spirit and do what He says. Because if you are a Christian this morning, you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself living inside of you to convict you and, 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 and compel you and to challenge you and, and to encourage you and to grow you in godliness. So he's your personal spiritual trainer. So when you feel his conviction, repent. When you sense his urging, Go. When you hear his voice saying, no, that's, that's not what you should be doing right now, or, or no, you shouldn't be clicking that, or, or, or no, that's not how you should respond to the situation, listen. But first and foremost, you will need your personal spiritual trainer, and that is the Holy Spirit. And then second, in your spiritual gym, you'll need your training manual, God's Word. See, God wrote a book, and he wrote it so that we can know him and grow to be like him. God's word is our spiritual training manual. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, listen, and for training in righteousness. That's what we're talking about right here. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Is that not self-explanatory? Like if you want to be trained in godliness and, and equipped for every good work, devour God's word. Don't just consult it like a reference manual. When you, when you find yourself in a jam, you need to find a quick fix to get out. Make this your training manual for life. Devour it. Let it be your guide. And then third, you'll need your training class. Other Christians. The Christian life is not a solo competition. It's a team sport. We've seen that in the passage right before this a couple of weeks ago when, where, where Paul has just finished Titus in chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. That in the context of the local church, people that are further along in their walks with Jesus Christ are to be pouring themselves into other people who are not so far along in their walks. But see, in the grand scheme of things, those people aren't the teachers though. The teacher is still the Holy Spirit. These are just fellow students in the spiritual training class helping others grow by their well-earned wisdom and encouragement and, and learning from their mistakes and, and helping them grow. But if you're going to be growing in godliness in this present age, you can't do it all alone. You can't, you can't isolate yourself. You're going to need to be around other Christians with you to help you in the spiritual gym. And fourth, finally, in your spiritual gym, you'll need training equipment, and that's real life. Philippians 4.9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. No, no, I didn't clearly spend a whole lot of time in the gym, but, but from, from what I can understand, you can't walk in a gym and stare at the equipment and hope that something happens. If you want to experience growth, you've got to break a sweat. 
In the same way, spiritual exercise isn't theoretical. It takes effort. It requires actually getting on the training equipment by going to the job site and, and walking onto your school campus and, 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 and living with your family and interacting with the people around you so that you can put into practice in reality what you've already learned in theory as your personal trainer guides you and your training manual instructs you and your training class encourages you through the process. But you can't just sit and stare at life and hope something happens. You've got to jump in. You've got to live But remember, the good news is the progress isn't all on you. Yes, you do have to put in the work. You have have that responsibility, but it's God's grace that brings the results. It's God's grace that's fueling you and grows you as it trains you to renounce ungodliness and and training you to live in a godly life in this present age. Friends, what a precious diamond Paul is showing us in this passage. He's shown us the diamond of God's grace has saved us from the penalty of sin. And then he's he's turned a little bit and he said, "But, but not only that, it's also sanctifying you from the power of sin, but he's not done yet. He turns it one last time in verses 13 through 15 to show us the, the third angle of God's grace this morning. And that's that God's grace will secure us from the presence of sin. That God's grace, future tense, will secure us from the presence of sin. One last time, look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Again, the grace of God has appeared. It's training us. And now in 13, it's also causing us to be waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I love how clear Paul is being that those who truly understand how precious God's grace is will not only have been saved and not only are they being sanctified, but they're also longing for the day when as 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He will return. And the expectation that Paul has for us because of that is that we will be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem, though, is that I think that if we're honest with ourselves, most of us are not really waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. We're too distracted. We're busy. We've got things going on. We've got too much going on to actually be really putting any effort whatsoever into eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. Now, we'll get to why we should be waiting for Christ in just a second, but, but first, let's talk about how we should be waiting for Christ's return, because we don't all wait the same way, right? We wait different ways, and so here's how we shouldn't wait. If you're close enough with me, you know that I like to text and tweet using GIFs, those little moving pictures, and, and so one of the GIFs that I like to text with is, it was one of the cookie monster waiting, and, and so it's really a simple GIF. He's just kind of sitting at a table, and he's, he, he's, he's got his hand on the table, and he's got his head propped up in his hand, and he's just kind of tapping his fingers away, just like staring at nowhere and doing absolutely nothing, accomplishing nothing. He's just totally out, spacing out in the middle of nowhere. That's not how we're supposed to wait. No, we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, not just sitting there wasting time, staring off and hoping something happens. That's not how we're supposed to wait. Or here's another way we're not supposed to wait. 
Uh, Last weekend, Veronica and I got to see a, a Broadway show that we've been literally waiting for years to hopefully go see. But by waiting, I I mean hoping, because the show has been so popular since it came out, there was never any guarantee that we'd get to see it. It was impossible to get tickets. Like in the years that we've been waiting, we've literally tried in the three states that we've lived in, we've made plans in those three states to go see it at different times, and it's just never worked out. And so so again, it it was not really a matter of waiting, it was hoping, because there was no guarantee we'd ever actually get to do it. That's not like waiting for Christ's return. Why? Because his return is guaranteed. It is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when he'll return. Or a lot of us are waiting for his return like kids in the backseat of the car on the way home from being bad in public. Like growing up, did you ever hear your parents say the phrase, like, you're going to get it when you get home? Did you ever hear that growing up at all? Like your parents weren't going to dish out the the punishment in public and, and then embarrass the whole family by causing a scene but when you got home and you walked through the front door, you knew exactly what was going to happen. And so the, so the whole car ride home, you're, you're sitting in the back seat like, I, I know I'm going to be fine. I know they're not going to kill me. But this is, this is not, not going to go so well for me. And I'm, I'm not anticipating this. So many of us think that's what heaven's going to be like. We know we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We know we're being sanctified from the power of sin. But there's, there's still this little thought in the back of our minds sometimes that makes us think that, that God's like our parent who's not going to dish out the punishment here because he doesn't want to make a scene, but that he's still pointing his finger at us and saying, listen, you're going to get it when you get home. And so we're waiting for Christ's return like a kid in the backseat of the car, dreading the moment that we pull into the driveway of heaven. But that's not how we're supposed to wait. Of course not. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus paid it all. God's not, God as our our heavenly father is not waiting to give us so much as a sideways glance when we get home. So how are we supposed to wait? How should we be waiting for the return of Jesus? Well, if your house is anything like mine, when, when you have guests over, there's a tension between two things that are happening at the same time. First, no matter how ready the house already is, up until the very last millisecond before the guests arrive, my wife is, is constantly making the house more ready and more ready and more ready. And, and it doesn't matter how ready it actually is, like it's never good enough. The preparation is never complete until they're actually there. And at the same time, our kids have their faces like pressed against the windows, just anxiously awaiting for the first sight of one of the guests to come around the corner and down the sidewalk. And they're pestering us with questions like, when are they going to be here? How much longer? What time is it? How much longer do I have to wait? And it's with those two things in tension, the never-ending preparation until the time is complete and the always eager anticipation until the guest arrives, that's how we're supposed to wait for the return of Jesus. Why? Because in the moment of his peering, his, his glory will be revealed completely clearly for us and God's grace will secure us from the presence of sin. Because he has redeemed us, we will fully and finally be removed from all lawlessness as the people who have been perfectly purified for his possession, as verse 14 says. And what that means is two things. First, you will no longer sin. Sin will no longer have power over you. You will no longer have a grip on your heart. There will be no more struggles, no more battles with temptation. Anybody excited for that? And second, you will no longer feel the effects of sin. No more broken world. No more broken relationships. No more broken bodies. 
No more sorrow, no more pain. As Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then as God continues revealing his glory to us for all of eternity, we'll finally see how Romans 8.28 really was true. How God really was working all things, the hard things, the trying things, the, the suffering things, working all things together for the good of those who love him. Just think about what that means for a second. What that means is that even though you can't see it right now, when God's grace has finally secured us from the power of sin, we will be able to look back at what God was doing in the middle of our trials and see that it was worth it for our glory and his good. We'll be able to look back from the, from the perspective of heaven and say, and say God, I, I can see now what you were doing in my health crisis. God, I can, I can see now what you were doing when I lost my job or when I was still in that job with a horrible boss. Or God, I can, I can see what you were doing when my spouse was ailing and my, and my parents were aging and failing and my kids were, were flailing and, and I was worried about it. And I can see what you were doing and, and every second of it from this perspective now is worth it because now I can see how you were using those seasons of suffering in my life to make me look more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we'll worship him together for all of eternity, for all of it because it will have been his grace that has done it all from beginning to end. And that's why in verse 15, Paul rounds off the final corner of this diamond by saying, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, make grace your theme. Make God's grace the focus of your life. Talk it, teach it, preach it, share it, live it, give it out, keep living with it. Because it's God's grace that is driving the Christian life from beginning to end. There's an old hymn that says, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And I really think in the context of Titus chapter two, it'd be okay if we switched the words out to say, the grace of God has been my theme and shall be till I die. And it would still mean the same thing. And let me just say, there is no greater theme to marinate your life in for a lifetime than the grace of God. Because if you are in Christ this morning, it is God's grace that has saved you. And it's his grace that is sanctifying you. And it is his grace that will secure you from the power of sin. It is your greatest need. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the story of two men, a man in a field and a man in a flea market. The first man was out in the field one day and it was a, it was a day just like any other day. There's nothing really particularly impressive about this day and we don't really know why he was out there. He, he may have just been out for a walk. He may, have, he may have worked there, but Jesus tells this story. And as I imagine how the story went, he, this man was out for a walk one day and all of a sudden he, he, he was walking and he, he tripped and he fell flat on his face in the middle of the, the mud and the dirt of life. And, and out of curiosity, out of a little bit of frustration, he, he turns back around to see what it was that tripped him up. And, and when he turned around and glimpsed it, he found a treasure greater than he could ever imagine. A treasure that would change his life. And when he understood the opportunity that he had, he didn't, just, he didn't think twice about it. He didn't have to run it past his friends. Jesus just said he, that in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. It wasn't enough to admire the treasure from afar or just remember the time that he saw it up close. He knew he needed to make it his own. It was the only right response. And even though it cost him everything that he had, it was worth it. 
and it changed his life. The second man that Jesus talked about was a man working his way through a flea market one day in search of his next great find. And he, he stumbled across what Jesus describes as a pearl of great price. Just like the man in the field, when, when the second man saw the opportunity that was before him, he, he went and he sold everything. And, and he bought that pearl. Because he knew he couldn't just tell the story of that day in the shop where he had a close encounter with, with this precious gem. He knew he had to make it his own. It would be the only right response. And even though it cost him everything, it was worth it. And it changed his life. Friends, this morning we haven't been wandering in a field or stepping into a flea market, but we have found ourselves standing at the jewelry store counter of Scripture. What we've seen is a diamond more precious than any price tag could ever show. But listen, the diamond of God's grace will do you no good if you just leave it on display. You've got to make it your own. You've got to put it on. You've got to let it saturate your life. And if you will do that, it will change your life. It will change your life immediately as it saves you from the penalty of sin. And it'll change your life increasingly as it sanctifies you from the power of sin. And eventually, eventually it will secure you from the presence of sin. But you've got to make it your own. And let's be clear, it will cost you everything, but it will be worth it. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing with it all of this. The grace of God has pursued you. So what will you do with grace? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for who you are as a sending God that loves us so much even in our sinfulness and our brokenness. When you could have just written it off and said they've done what they've done, they're on their own now, I don't care anymore. You sent your son for us. You pursued us with your grace to save us and to sanctify us and eventually to secure us. So Father, I pray for two different types of people here this morning. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ, your son, as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, would you draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit and by your grace this morning? Do a work in their hearts to say, I can't save myself. I need grace and I understand it'll be costly, but what else am I gonna do? Jesus, would you save me? Second, Father, I pray for the rest of us who are in this life battling sin, battling the effects of sin, battling the temptations and the, the brokenness of this world. Encourage us by your grace. Fuel us by your grace. Help us to know that the results aren't on us. We've got to go to the spiritual gym. We've got to be walking with you and doing everything that we can to continue growing in your grace. Father, would you grow us? Would you show us much fruit in our lives as we, as we lay ourselves low and humble before you? And we long for the day when you return. 
Help us to put that in its proper perspective, to help us to look forward to the day when we'll be secured from the, the presence of sin and we will spend eternity worshiping you nonstop because you are worth it. Help us to see that clearly now. In Jesus' name.